This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 245. And today is also a super special day because the podcast is five years old today. I cannot believe it. To anyone who has started listening from the very beginning, thank you so much for sticking with me all these years. Anyone who joined us along the way, I hope you enjoyed some binge listening as you went back in time to some of the shows that we've done. I often look back at the shows because I put together groups of common uh, topics and do archive features on Instagram for anyone who might have missed some of the past shows. And I'm always so thankful, amazed, impressed with our incredible speakers who share what are largely timeless conversations that are as relevant today as they were five years ago. And it speaks to the pioneering spirit of a lot of our experts that I have on the show. Uh, And it speaks to the profound impact that these shows can have on people's lives. So if you are brand new to the show, please do dive back. I mean, there are 244 other shows. And uh, a question I often get asked is, is there a method to your madness? Like I often think, oh no, this one's not going to apply to me. I'm not going to find it very interesting because the heading doesn't feel very relevant to their life. And then they just kind of start listening because they're in the kitchen plodding along with something in their day. And they're like, oh my gosh, that show changed my life. And really in the last couple of years, I've started to create um, topic themes. So I'll run with a topic for three to five weeks so that we can dive in from different aspects as we're just about to start a new series today on all things related to the brain. Uh, And uh, boy, do I have some incredible guests. We have uh, Professor Jill Bolte-Taylor joining us next week. We have Dr. Maya Sheetreet on uh, plant medicine, psychedelics and teacher plants. Uh, We have the wonderful uh, oh gosh, who's our other? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, Dominique on sophrology and uh, meditation and mindfulness in the through the lens of uh, sophrology, which is a very interesting uh, form of uh, brain retraining, support, and development. And of course, today with the wonderful Dr. Dale Bredesen, who is back for the third time checking in. I do an annual check-in with Dale because he and his research teams are really at what I consider to be at the forefront of uh, Alzheimer's research in terms of productive, broad, uh, wide-ranging thinking on how we can actually Uh, not only uh, prevent Alzheimer's uh, proactively, but also how we can support families, people who have Alzheimer's. And in today's show, we are actually looking at the first survivors of Alzheimer's. And that will make a whole bunch more sense. It doesn't even sound like that might be possible in the uh, current thinking on Alzheimer's and our current understanding on this degenerative disease. But Boy, is it exciting to hear what uh, Dale and his team have been able to 
to do, achieve through their research, but also through the brave souls who have undertaken that uh, research advice and trialled different things and to really start to see what's working to reverse symptoms for people. It's, it's, it's amazing. As someone who has had uh, Alzheimer's and dementia in my family, um, I lost my grandma to that uh, horrific disease and I know so many of us have, right? So, you know, we should, of course, be always interested in uh, anything that we could do to change that reality um, and change the growing statistic of Alzheimer's as uh, something um, taking people from our community, often far too young. So um, that's the brain series coming up and that's kind of what I've been doing the last couple of years. But really we work through food, body, home, mind topics. There's always an overarching theme of caring for our planet, our home, the environment and becoming more connected to it. So you'll often see shows like that as well. And, uh, and we oscillate really between, um, practical toxin reducing how to type episodes to a lot of personal health episodes, because I believe a lot of people start to seek change because of something dramatic happening in their own personal health picture. Or, you know, I've heard from so many of you, my mum got sick and it made me start to think, how can I help her? beyond what our doctors are telling us to do. And I found this and this, and it's changed my life and it's helping her recovery, you know, these sorts of stories. And so often it's something quite impactful and very close to home that causes us to think about the bigger picture. And so we need to address that closer to home uh, aspect, the personal health aspect. Me having experienced mold illness these past five years and gradually recovering from that, as is my son, means I'm really close to that personal health factor as well. And we we can't save the planet if we feel too unwell to do so. We can't be unselfish if we are tied up in fight and flight and just surviving our day. So you will always see me oscillating between that how can I help myself be my best self now and looking at a, a ton of different personal health topics and then the bigger picture of really fascinating topics on uh, uh, const- everything from construction and how we can build better in the future for healthier homes and planets right through to interiors, right through to uh, in- environmental toxins, Uh, right through to how sustainability and regeneration is looking in farms, how it's looking in, uh, you know, we did a fantastic show with the Broadway set designer uh, recently on how it's looking in that industry. So really, really big, wide topics and then topics close to home. So hopefully that is continuing to float your boat. Uh, A big welcome to anyone who's new Uh, If you haven't had a listen, please do. If you feel called to perhaps leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, believe me, it helps us get noticed more and shared more and reach the top of searches more frequently for other people to find the usefulness of these shows. And I appreciate you for doing that. So uh, I'm going to jump into Dr. Dale Bredesen's uh, show in a little minute. 
because I, I know that's why you're listening. Uh, he's an internationally recognized expert in uh, the mechanisms of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, the author of the New York Times bestselling The End of Alzheimer's 2017, which, by the way, was not a title he chose, uh, and then the program that came out last year, He's held faculty positions at UC San Fran, UCLA, University of California, San Diego, and directed the program on aging at the Birmingham Institute before becoming, before coming to the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in 1998 as its founding president and CEO. He's currently a professor at UCLA, if you are lucky enough to study neurology there. Um, he is a fantastic man doing great work. And so that conversation starts in literally two minutes, but I want to just remind you, you have another week to make the most of two fantastic sponsors. Now, one of our sponsors ships worldwide, so that's exciting. And I'll tell you about that in a, a second. But the first one I want to talk about, uh, and it's kind of relevant today's show, is Oz Climate. So Oz Climate are giving you 5% off already discounted, fantastic Australian made and produced dehumidifiers and air filters. And they are excellent, excellent quality, uh, approved by the Sensitive Choice Program, the National Asthma Council. The website is ozclimate, ausclimate.com.au. And uh, your code is, oh my gosh, where is it? Where is it? Low Tox Life. <laughs> Could have remembered that from last week, couldn't I? And that gives you an extra 5% off. I am passionate about dehumidification and air purification. Air purification is a great uh, tool if you live in a very urban area, you want to improve the quality of your air, you don't have many trees around, maybe you live on a major intersection, maybe you're living in a water-damaged building and you can't get out right now, uh, you can't change your life situation, so you want to mop up some of those mold spores that are flying around pronto, um, then you definitely want to look into investing in an air filter. Now, dehumidification is probably something I'm even more passionate about because as someone who lives on an East Coast, uh, I know people who live on the East Coast of the US, for example, and in the South where humidity is rife. It is here as well, up in the North, especially in Queensland and far North Queensland. It is impossible, even if you have the best airflow in the world, to get, de to get your humidity, uh, your ambient humidity below 60% for about eight months of the year. It's virtually impossible. And what having a dehumidifier is going to do, especially around laundries, bathrooms, or any uh, rooms where you have a hygrometer, which is something you can test the humidity inside your house with, and you can see it's regularly above 60%, what that's doing is that is providing the perfect moist environment for mold to grow. And the easiest thing we can do is when we close all the doors at night is to run a dehumidifier in our living spaces. And then during the day when our bedrooms aren't inhabited to pop the dehumidifier in for a couple of hours a day. And then we are religious about putting the dehumidifier on in the bathroom after the three of us have had our showers in the evening. Even though we've got an air uh, exhaust that is actually quite effective, uh, while the exhaust removes the humidity in the air, it doesn't just magically dry out all the tiles and grout. And having a dehumidifier on for a couple of minutes, a couple of hours just completely dries out the bathroom 
And, you know, you get so many, oh, how do I clean the mold? It is really hard to remove mold and to keep it at bay if you if you have a humidity over 60% regularly in your living space. So please consider getting a dehumidifier. Uh, they're expensive, of course. It is a big ticket item. But what you get for that is reduced mold in your environment, therefore reduced risk of mold illness, certainly reduction in symptoms if you already have mold illness or SIRS and you're able to start keeping your environment more dry. You obviously stop those musty smells. You stop condensation on your windows. Sometimes people find all they need is to run a dehumidifier for an hour in um, bedrooms or living areas that get condensation, then it's sorted, uh, and reduced asthma and allergy flare-ups. So... um, I mean, it's just such a great product to have, and I really do encourage you to go check out the Oz Climate website uh, for more details for the different options. And you don't just have to use that Lotox Life code for your 5% online. You can actually call them, have a chat about different options, what you might need for your living space. They're an awesome team. And uh, and then choose the right product for you, and they'll give you the 5% over the phone. And then that other product that ships worldwide is the Block Blue Light range. Um, I'm a huge fan. You've seen me wearing the glasses. You've seen my son wearing the glasses. Uh, I have actually started, um, I, I got a bit lazy with the nighttime glasses with the more orangey lens that cuts everything out. And uh, I started wearing them again last night. And I wear the Oura Ring Um which has been an integral part of measuring and testing recovery and and how I'm doing with SIRS. And very interestingly, I usually have recently hovered around the one hour and 15 mark for deep sleep and wearing the orange glasses last night until I went to bed and turned off all the lights. Um, And, you know, I even use the, the beautiful Sweet Dreams lights in the evening anyway. But, you know, looking at the screen or watching TV, it's really, really amazing to be able to cut those blue and green lights out. Um, I got an hour and 45 minutes deep sleep last night. So I'm now going to run the experiment and see if I can keep that hovering around that, um, that, uh, level because that is uh, ideal. And I feel really well rested today, like super, super energized. My son and I bounded out of bed, got dressed five degrees outside and we got changed and did our workout, no problems. And normally I would have been considering the snooze button. So uh, I'm looking forward to continuing my um, my discipline around making sure I wear those evening light um, glasses as well. Um, but I wanted to just quickly mention for anyone who hasn't tried red light therapy, if you're someone who experiences pain often, frequently, joint issues, Uh, things like edema, inflammation, uh, and you're working perhaps with a physiotherapist or chiropractor to manage those symptoms, something amazing to pop into your routine is red light therapy as well, if you haven't considered it. Hilariously, I'm actually resting my microphone on my red light panel right now as I sit on my bed recording this intro in our apartment because we're in lockdown and we're basically, if you don't adapt and survive, um, the alternative is not worth considering. So it's actually quite funny. I'll take a picture and put it on Instagram, you'll see it today. Um, but uh, popping on a red light panel, just doing even 10, 15 minutes of therapy really is quite amazing. I um, am grateful that Daniel and the team have brought out a range of red light therapy products. 
they are ultra low EMF, they are flicker free uh, and ensure therefore, because there are a lot of different ones out there that they are true health devices, not then causing harm in other ways. Uh, The panels are super competitively priced, makes them much more affordable than brands that Australians have had to traditionally get from the US, or maybe you guys in the US want to check out the prices as well. Um, And the biggest benefit is there's local support with a three-year warranty. So it gives you a lot of confidence that you're going to get some really good mileage out of it, no matter what happens. Uh, And so their range of panels are the highest power output panels available, which ensures that you're able to get the therapeutic dosage to ensure maximum benefits. And they've got a ton of details on the website about them. They've got different shapes and sizes. I have a really good one that I find is perfect for the length of my back or the length of sort of knee down to ankle. Uh, And I find that works if I just move it around. If you've uh, got a bit more uh, disposable cash, I would definitely recommend getting the big size because then you can treat the whole body in one session. And, uh, and I, I wouldn't be without it. And I'm upset that I had to spend so much on mine from the US when my doctor recommended I get one uh, for um, my inflammation um, management uh, as I recovered. And, uh, and now you can get one locally and they're awesome. So remember you have 15% off. So off these bigger ticket items, that is huge. Uh, Lotox Life 15 is your code and uh, blockbluelight.com.au is the website. So enjoy checking out the red light therapy options and uh, I will keep you posted about my um, glasses and how my deep sleep is going by religiously wearing those glasses at night like a good girl, like I know I should, but uh, I kind of um, dropped the ball for a few months there, but I'm back. So anyway, that's all I have to tell you about with our wonderful sponsors of the show this month. Please enjoy this incredible conversation with Dale Bredesen talking about the first survivors of Alzheimer's. Hello, Dale. How are you? I'm doing great. How about you, Alex? I am very well. I am very excited to have you back on the show. I said just before we hit record, it's like our annual catch up to see how we're going in Alzheimer's research and recovery development. And you are one of the great champions of the world for it. So I'm very, very happy to welcome you back. Great to be back. Thank you, Alex. Now, uh, you start your next book. I'm just going to jump straight into this because I think it was really exciting to see some of the historical moments of disease treatment, prevention, cure, and um, how quickly we have been able to come to the rescue of certain horrific diseases. Uh, And I I just love, there's a paragraph I really want to read out uh, because it's quite topical to what um, this family then went on to do because this boy's life was saved. So I'm going to start here. Najeev was a teenage boy in the 1940s living in a village in India when he developed fever and a headache and lapsed into unconsciousness. He was taken by bullet cart from his village to the city where the doctor diagnosed bacterial meningitis. At the time, this was typically a rapidly fatal illness. On this occasion, however, the doctor told Najeev's parents, until last week, there would have been nothing I could have done to save your son but a new drug has just arrived from England. It's called penicillin. Instead of dying then, Najeev made a full recovery. And this is of more more than passing interest to all of us because Najeev's son is one of the most gifted biomedical researchers I, being you, Dale, have ever met. And his research 
may offer the best hope for an effective antiviral treatment, not just for the COVID-19 of the current pandemic, but also for any subsequent coronavirus pandemics. A brilliant advance with global life-saving ramifications. Um, wow. Yeah, very, very exciting. And um, so, so this one of the things that fascinates me is, you know, when we learn in medical school, we're taught, here's the way it's done. And, you know, we, we have to listen to our teachers because otherwise people could get hurt. And that's a critical piece for us to continue to learn what we are taught. However, there's a second completely different part, which is what fascinates me. When things aren't going well, as in treatment of Alzheimer's for the last hundred years, or in that case, treatment of bacterial meningitis for the previous centuries, you have to change fundamentally the way you think about these things. And yet that goes against what your teachers are teaching you. And so you, we have to have both. We have to have the people who are good listeners and, and good soldiers, but we've also have to have the people who are questioning and saying, you know, we can do better. This is not the right thing. So Najib's son is a fascinating guy I've known for years who has studied viral replication. And what he found was absolutely fascinating. It's gonna change medicine. And I've been surprised this guy should, should win the Nobel prize. Um, but there, ha there hasn't been enough recognition of what he's found. So we're all taught in our textbooks that viruses self-assemble. Yes, if you have a test tube and there's an extremely high concentration of virus, indeed, it will come together. But in your cell, at the concentrations of the various uh, viral constituents, you don't have this self-assembly very quickly at all. So in fact, it turns out what, what his son found was that there is an assembly machine that's co-opted by these viruses. And why that's so incredibly important is, if you go after the virus, which is what everyone's doing now, you're going after the hepatitis C virus or the HIV or, or you know, antivirals being developed for SARS-CoV-2, it can mutate often around what you're going after, which is one of the reasons, of course, triple therapy has worked pretty well for HIV. So, what was found then uh, was that, in fact, if you go after the cellular thing that's, that's building this, as opposed to the viral thing that's building it, then in fact, you can make any coronavirus you want. That medicine still, it's still the coronavirus has to go through that pathway in the cell, which it then again, it co-ops it. So it takes a normal pathway and makes it an abnormal pathway to support itself which again was a fascinating finding. So now when drugs are developed that target that pathway, they target anything you wanna develop. You take the next 20 coronavirus mutants, the next 50 coronavirus mutants, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, they still go through the same cellular pathway. So these are medications which he and his group are developing that are variant independent. And of course, we're all hearing about the Delta uh, variant right now uh, for SARS-CoV-2, which is really uh, producing a problem in places like the UK, for example, and with maybe in the US pretty soon, we'll see. So that's why I think this is such an important finding and could help us for years to come. And this same approach um, is, uh, is appropriate for uh, and applicable not to any virus. So there, what he found actually is there are different, the different families of viruses each have their own pathways they go through. Therefore, when you get one, so they, for example, they have a set of 
compounds that are good for all respiratory viruses, flu viruses, coronaviruses. It's really uh, kind of remarkable, actually. Uh, and so that's why I said, you know, that, that, that's why I was struck by that story. And so actually, I went back and asked him about to give me more details about his father. And, you know, did this really happen? Was this really a, a, a true story? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that I just thought that was fascinating. And I'm always interested in that. How does medicine make when it's going in one direction? And a lot of times we can make improvements, improvements, maybe a little better surgical procedure here. Maybe we go from uh, penicillin to, uh, you know, to cephalosporins and things. But then when does it actually take a right turn and say, no, this is completely the wrong way. And now we're going to go after something completely differently. Mm. And do you think that part of um, part of the sort of, uh, what am I trying to say here? The uh, I'm thinking of a French word, the slow uptake of new information um, uh, and, and progress in medicine can sometimes be because people who do the biomedical science degrees, people who do uh, the research work are, are in the face of the new stuff all the time, but the people who are being taught to treat people and, and perform surgery on people are taught this is how it's done. And so you've literally got two different areas of medicine with different uh, ways of thinking about um, solving problems in health. That's exactly right. And of course, medicine, as I mentioned in the book, has always been about tradition and permission, whereas Silicon Valley has always been about disruption. So it's easy. If you disrupt something and your computer doesn't work right, it's not a big deal. If you disrupt something and someone dies, that's a huge deal. So obviously we are taught primum non nocere. You know, we're first do no harm. And unfortunately, in something like Alzheimer's, where there really isn't anything to help, we need to go beyond that and just say, okay, we get it. We've got to change. If you go back, you know, this, you hear this story a time and time and time again. Um, great example, Semmelweis, um, you know, who was really involved before people understood the germ theory and showing that, yes, you can have a reduction um, in the infection rate and the death rate for mothers after delivery. Uh, and, and so things like this, where you have a huge changes, and of course, Dana Farber, who developed uh, the first effective treatment for childhood leukemia, ended up leading to the deaths of several people before he got something that actually, which is horrible to think about. And yet he has saved the lives of countless people thereafter. So this is always tough in medicine. We're trying not to hurt people. And at the same time, we're watching them to go. And my argument is, you know, at some point in Alzheimer's, it becomes criminal negligence. You're just watching people go time after time after time, even when there are published approaches that work better than what you're doing. So I want to ask you, Dale, you've obviously spent, and for the people who haven't maybe tuned into our two previous shows yet, which I absolutely encourage everybody to do after today, because each of them, we really do cover very different things. Um, 30 years of clinical research has informed your work today. Uh, and you and your team have arrived at some conclusions, some pretty exciting findings and some things that you see over and over and over again actually benefiting people with Alzheimer's diagnoses, uh, and yet it's not in the mainstream. And I want to tackle that aspect of it in a little bit, but I'd first like to ask you some of the biggest realisations you've had in the past 30 years of researching this disease, just to give people a little taste of, of what we've talked about in the past 
and uh, and to be able to continue on um, informed in today's discussion. Yeah, it's a great point and, and something I, I'm not asked very often. And, you know, when you're doing this stuff, it's like you look back and you think 30 years, boy, we were really slow. What the heck took us so long to these realizations? But, you know, by the time, you know, you're writing grants and you're trying to part of the grant writing problem is you're trying to convince your own competitors that's the stuff that you're doing is the right stuff to fund, while at the same time, your approaches are saying they are all wrong. And that's, it's a, it's a problem of the system itself. And so what we found over the years was often our least interesting stuff would get the best scores and our most interesting stuff would be booted. People say, no, we just don't believe that. You know, we, you're telling us that we're wrong. So they, the whole system is really a tough one to get, you know, to get supported. Peer review and consensus are two things that really unfortunately hold people back when you're trying to do something new and different. So one of the early realizations we came to is that you could, you could study the phenomenon of neurodegeneration by just looking at programmed cell death in a dish. So the, from the very beginning, we were looking for, can we develop something that is a simple way to study neurodegeneration because it's the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. I was always envious of the cancer researchers because you can study cancer in a dish really well. There are all sorts of phenotypic things in a cancer cell. You know, it's invasive and it, you know, it, does, it divides and it doesn't respect boundaries. And there are all these great things that the cancer biologists had figured out hey, we can now transfect in hunks of DNA, we can discover oncogenes and ultimately tumor suppressor genes, great stuff. And so we were looking from the beginning for, could we understand, could we get a simple model in a dish? Because the whole trick is to iterate many, many times to get to an answer. Uh, because it, you know, it's going to take some time. And if you've got each experiment takes 10 years, you're in trouble. But if each experiment takes 10 hours, you're in good shape. And so we found that you could study the phenomenon of programmed cell death. And then the second thing we found, which really surprised me actually, is that the genes that are associated with neurodegeneration, such as APP mutations, copper zinc SOD mutations in ALS, for example, Huntington mutations in Huntington's disease. If you took those genes that were, had the mutants and put them into these cells in culture, it would increase their probability of committing suicide. I was like, wow. And I remember still uh, the first time I was talking to one of my colleagues from Johns Hopkins, and, and we were doing this as a collaboration between Johns Hopkins and ourselves. And when we looked at this and saw that, oh my gosh, you could clearly see this increase in the probability of committing suicide when these things had these mutations, it really hit me, wow, we can use this now as a way to begin to study the pathways. What are the things that go, you know, that have to go up and down to get this phenomenon? And then the next thing we found was this phenomenon of dependence receptors. So you could see that there were receptors where they were gonna cause the cell to die if they didn't get a supportive ligand, nerve growth factor, BDNF. And what was really exciting was then a few years later, we saw APP, amyloid precursor protein, was indeed one of these dependence receptors. So you start adding all those things up, we could start to see a pattern. And then what was really exciting was APP turns out to respond to all sorts of different inputs. It's responding to inflammation. It's responding to estradiol. It's responding to nerve growth factor. And this all started to come together to kind of gel as a picture of what we ultimately saw that, okay, this really suggests to us 
that what we call Alzheimer's disease is really about an insufficiency. You're not getting this support. And so interestingly, we started talking about this as a, you're not getting enough trophic factor, but then we realized it's not just trophic factors, it's hormones, it's nutrients, it's uh, inflammation. So it's really a, it's about a balance. So what's interesting is your neurons and your synaptic network have this beautiful balance, much like your bones, so that when you get osteoporosis, you know, your osteoclastic activity is exceeding your osteoblastic activity. We found the same thing in Alzheimer's. The synaptoblastic activity is exceeded by the synaptoclastic activity. And that is, you can basically look at that in a fairly simple way by looking at just four major groups, things that are causing inflammation, things that are toxins, things that are energetic. So if your energetics are low because your mitochondrial function is poor, ketones, et cetera, oxygenation, or your trophic activity. So if we look at those four, and each of those has several things in it, you really get a very good look at why someone is on the wrong side of that synaptoblastic, synaptoclastic ratio. And interestingly, we're, we're seeing that stress is also is part of that overall pathway. So uh, as a scientist, I've always thought stress, you know, what is the, that all about? Um, you know, it's about chemistry. Well, it turns out it's incredibly important. And yes, we, we need to address that. Well, and it's about the well nervous know, system, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. So you can now really kind of see, you can see into the Alzheimer's crystal ball and you can see for each person why they are on the wrong side of this. And this old fashioned, I mean, you know, everything in Alzheimer's has been backwards because there hasn't been an understanding of what it is. So people say, oh, you just got rid of the, got to get rid of the amyloid. Oh, you just got to get rid of the tau. You just got to get rid of the type three diabetes I and mean, on and on and on. Instead of seeing that, no, this is a very much of, a, of an orchestrated, coordinated effort in a plasticity network in your brain. And for each person, you can see why they are on the wrong side of that network, and you can see what to do about it. And furthermore, we can see that this could be adjusted for every neurodegenerative disease. So it's a different chemistry and a different Achilles heel. In Parkinson's, the Achilles heel is complex one of the mitochondria. In Alzheimer's disease, it's those four things that I mentioned. Each one of these has its own Achilles heel. So we really can change this from a world in which there's no good effective prevention and treatment for neurodegenerative diseases to which virtually every one of them can be prevented and reversed. And right now we're actually working with the first patients with macular degeneration. Uh, we're looking at the same sort of thing for Lewy body, et cetera, Parkinson's, et cetera. And actually the, the protocol we developed for Alzheimer's with very minor modifications works quite well for Lewy body as well. So I look forward to a world in which neurodegeneration is really not a major problem that it is today. Mm, I, I think it's incredibly exciting. And uh, I actually just finished reading a couple of months ago, Gabor Mate's incredible book, When the Body Says No. And uh, he looks at some of these big diseases and, um, and you see the stress picture for a lot of these individuals. And I'm so glad you mentioned stress again today, because I really don't think we can uh, stress that enough, uh, yeah, pardon the pun. Really, really important. Um, in your research, you will, some, some of that research led to the mismatch theory. And I think that's interesting. Right. I'd love for you to explain that. 
So the idea was, it goes back to what we were talking about with, uh, with what happens, for example, in osteoporosis. So what happens is you have these multiple subsystems in the brain, such as, you know, with Parkinson's, it's all about motor modulation and motor control. You lose control of the motor, you fall down, your hands shake, you can't move quickly. It's a motor modulation uh, uh, subsystem. With Alzheimer's, it's about plasticity. It is about a subsystem of the brain that is critical for making and keeping synapses. Uh, you know, we look at ALS, it's about motor power. It's about generating the power and keeping your muscles strong. And so each of these has its own functional system, has its own neurotransmitters, has its own trophic factors, and interestingly, has its own Achilles heel. And so what happens is with mismatch, the idea is that there is for each of these, there is a supply. They demand a certain amount of stuff. You've got to have a supply and they've got the demand. So you've got to meet that demand and exceed it chronically. What happens in all of these diseases and the, one of the biggest problems with these illnesses is we don't see them functionally until relatively late in the course. And as you well know, beautiful studies published by multiple groups showing that you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's about 20 years after you can begin to pick up PET scan abnormalities and, sp and spinal fluid abnormalities. So it takes a long time. And so what happens when you are chronically on the wrong side where the demand exceeds the supply, no big surprise, you are now downsizing. And what you can see again by studying the molecular biology of amyloid precursor protein is that this is a beautiful molecular switch. And I mentioned this in the book as well. You've got this switch where it's just like the prime minister or it's like the president or it's like the head of your company where when things are good, the decision is we're going to build and maintain. And that's what happens. You're making SAPP alpha and alpha CTF, one for outside the cell, one for inside the cell. And you're basically saying times are good. Let's build, let's maintain. On the other hand, when times are bad and you're picking it up with low energy and you're picking it up with NF kappa B associated with inflammation and you're picking it up because of the innate immune system and pathogens and toxins and all these things. Now what happens is the APP actually flips into a protective downsizing mode. And what's interesting is that it's doing the same thing that we all did as countries with SARS-CoV-2. So what happened? We had an invader, SARS-CoV-2, and we were told shelter in place, social distancing. And so we pulled back and therefore the countries went into recessions. Well, that's exactly what your brain is doing. It's now exposed to these various toxins and pathogens and low energy states and low hormones, et cetera. And it's now going into protective mode. And why does it make the amyloid that we vilify in this disease? Because that is a beautiful antimicrobial peptide. It has actually antiviral effects. It has antifungal effects. It has antibacterial and spiroketal effects. So it's a wonderful thing to have. But unfortunately, of course, it's also part of the downsizing. So we need to understand why it's there. Not just say, oh, it's there for some reason we don't understand. Let's get rid of it. Um, and what's really intriguing is that when people have gotten rid of it, you don't see people come back to normal. At the very best, under strange circumstances, this is only happens occasionally, people slow their decline a little bit. And that's been the big problem. But many times they actually get worse. And so removing the amyloid, it's very much like if someone said to you, look, you want to treat leprosy, you want to remove the granulomas. 
and they didn't understand that there was a mycobacterium at the center of these granulomas. That's exactly what's happening with amyloid. You've got problems at the center of these amyloid lakes, and that's why the that's why you've made that amyloid. So removing the amyloid, sure, it might be part of an overall approach, but you're missing the actual root causes of the disease we call Alzheimer's. Kind of like going after cholesterol in heart disease as the single Very biggest much. thing to focus on, right? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned amyloid removal and its um, its lack of clear picture success. So I think it might be a good time to talk about this new drug that is out. Uh, and I just want to kind of uh, frame this a little bit. It, it is very recent. The media went absolutely nuts about it. Uh, it was going to save the day for thousands and thousands of people, well, millions of people around the world at the cool price of, I think, 56,000 US dollars a year for the family that might want to take it, uh, the patient that might need it. Uh, and I know in your country that would probably not be covered at all by anyone. So it would be an extremely expensive exercise. And unfortunately, as soon as it was touted as the great saviour for Alzheimer's patients, it seems it was very obvious that it was not. Can you talk to us about uh, you having this particular drug on the radar uh, because you would have known about its development for a lot longer than we have and how you saw it come to the point where it was approved and what you see as the major issues with its approval, both from the political aspect and from the medical aspect? I know that's a big question, but I think we really need to talk about it because I, I think false hope is a really sad thing. My grandmother had Alzheimer's. I, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not something we want to play around with if something in, in fact is not a great idea. So. That's a great point. Um, you know, and, and I wrote about the aducanumab in the new book mm. um, because of this, because of this pending approval and whether it was it going to be approved, was it not going to be approved? And unfortunately, um, it really, it really shows that the system is, is broken in this area. And of course, as you've heard, um, three of the expert panel resigned over this uh, uh, approval. Um, the expert panel that was convened by the FDA voted 10 to zero against approval. To my knowledge, it's never happened that an expert panel has voted unanimously. Now, to be fair, one of them said they were uncertain. So it was 10 to zero to one uncertain. Nobody out of the panel voted that this should be approved. And yet the FDA did approve it. Going so how it. does that even happen? So the FDA is not required to follow the recommendations of the panel, but it's usually something that it might have been six to four or seven to four or six to five or something like that. that those are the times when they tend to override them. I don't think there's a precedent for overriding a 10 to zero. Um, and you mentioned $56,000. That's every year for the rest of your life. So this is something you continue with. And $56,000 is the beginning because you still have to have scans. You have to have infusions. There are all sorts of secondary items that have to be done to, to make this work. And yeah, you can say, well, you know, we, we shouldn't, we're not supposed to think about price. Well, it's, if it were inf infinite and only one person in history can get it, you'd think about it. So it's, it's just a question of at what point do you begin to think about it? And certainly when you're, it's getting close to $100,000 a year here in the U.S. is what it will ultimately be. 
um, you know, that's a, that's a consideration because it, it's going to bankrupt Medicare. Now, Medicare has not said that they will approve it yet. We'll see. I think it's going to be important. And just as of today, an investigation has been suggested by lawmakers that we really need to look in and have a whole investigation into why this was approved, because there are some really kind of uh, seamy underbelly uh, issues here. For example, um, the company Biogen that, that produces this uh, paid the Alzheimer's Association $1.4 million to say that it was a good drug. Now, th that's highly unethical. They also paid us against Alzheimer's and us against Alzheimer's, no surprise, uh, wrote uh, the, you know, these wonderful op-eds saying, oh, of course we should approve this. So, you know, when you're being paid to say something is good, I mean, that's, that's an unethical thing. That doesn't, it makes it so that you're going to be biased. Now, having said that, I think the most compelling argument for approval was we don't have anything for this disease and therefore isn't something better than nothing. Well, maybe. Uh, however, there are numerous published studies on other approaches that were clearly superior to aducanumab. So this idea that we have nothing is actually incorrect. The second thing here is that, so it's basically ignoring published data. The second thing is in science, there has to be uh, a, a, an internal consistency. So in other words, you know, if gravity works in Australia, gravity should also work in the United States. And so you've got to have things that are internally consistent. And so one of the things that was that's found again and again and again is that when you use these drugs that remove amyloid, it doesn't make people better. And that's been seen with multiple drugs at multiple doses over the past 10 years. And in fact, if you look at, well, the people who got better versus the people who didn't get better, was there a, 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 an association with the dosage? The answer is no. So what's really unfortunate and completely irrational is that the, the FDA that, that then approved this said, we're not approving it because it makes people better. We're approving it, we're giving it accelerated approval, which is what they did. So it was a loophole. We're approving it because we know it reduces amyloid. Yes, it does. Everybody agrees on that. It reduces amyloid. And we can reasonably expect that reducing amyloid will have cognitive benefit. But that's exactly the opposite of what the trials all showed. What they showed for multiple drugs was that removing the amyloid does not make the cognition better. The other thing is that ahead of time, when you're a you know, statistician, you say, okay, here's how we review these things. And so you're looking at, you, dec you decide your endpoints ahead of time, et cetera. As they said, you can't go and shoot the barn and then draw targets around the holes that you just shot in the barn. That's backwards. And that was what was done in this. So there were two different trials, engage and emerge, or as some people call them, engouge and e-mortgage. So these two trials, one of them failed completely. In fact, it was worse than the uh, it was worse than, than the placebo. The other one, at one dose only, seemed to slow the decline. It didn't make people better, which is another thing that's a misunderstanding. People say, "Oh, well, this thing maybe it'll make someone better." No, no one's claiming it makes people better. No one's claiming it keeps people at the same level. The natural decline in one trial at one dose was slowed by 22%. So you have this modest impact under the best of circumstances. Associated with that was 17% of people had micro hemorrhages in the brain. 
um, about 40% uh, of people uh, had swelling in the brain, so-called aria, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. So, so there are a lot of side effects. It's excessively expensive. It will bankrupt Medicare if, Medi if Medicare decides to uh, support it, and we'll see. Uh, Kaiser has already come out and said they're not going to support it uh, because there's really no evidence that it does something. Now, again, knowing that we, we want something, we all agree on that. We want something that helps people with Alzheimer's. The FDA could have, and I think a lot of people feel they should have, come out and said, you know what? There might be something here. Please do one more trial. If you look at the data, and by the way, both of these trials were stopped early because of futility, because they weren't helping people to go back at, after the fact and say, well, we, all, we know we already declared that they weren't helping anybody, but now we're going to say maybe in some circumstances they might have helped goes against everything you're taught as a statistician. Now, of course, we ultimately want what's correct. So fine, if this helps, do one more trial, pick the best of the best, say these are the people we can actually help and show that you can actually do it. The FDA chose not to do that. They said, you've got to do another trial within nine years, but you've got nine years to make hundreds of billions of dollars to soak the system for something that doesn't really work to see, and, and but no, after that nine years, we might stop you from taking you know, a tenth year. Okay, well, at that point, everyone will have a yacht, and you know, it's, it's, it's again. So, so ultimately, it comes down to: Are we interested in outcomes, or are we interested in incomes? And unfortunately, in this particular situation, there was much more interest in the income than there was in the outcome. That's mm -hmm. the problem. It's tragic, isn't it? And you think about uh, the the fact that largely pharmaceutical and chemical industry, chemical manufacturers are allowed to self-regulate, self-publish, uh, self-assess. Uh, you think of things like BPA being replaced with BPS so that you can say BPA free, and then they're just gonna try and let them use BPS for as long as it takes for the research to finally come out that that's actually not a great idea. But meanwhile, as you say, they've all got their yachts by then. And it's not about being uh, upset that people make money in the world, absolutely not. But we have to stop money being the only metric for success. Uh, they're, they're really, we need to deepen the, the notion of what success actually is. Yeah, and I'm sure you've seen uh, Dr. Robert Lustig's recent book, Metabolical. Uh, and, you know, he talks about these same issues that, you know, it's, it's all about, uh, you know, making money from processed food. So it's very hard to stop when you, when you've got billion dollars uh, changing hands, it's very hard to change the world. And yet, you know, we all need the best outcomes, not the best incomes. And so we need to, we need to ultimately to look at what are the actual results from these things. Now, you know, I think what's going to happen is ultimately there will be things that are so far superior to this that you know, the people will move on to the next. And, and actually, uh, we just published a trial a few months ago. And in fact, and I think I sent you the, the graphic, you can see that um, there is a 22% reduction in the decline with uh, aducanumab, whereas in our trial, we actually saw marked improvements in these people. So it's, it's quite striking. Yeah, not um, just, and so I just wanna clarify that for people who are a bit newer to this. Um, so 20% uh, slowing of decline does not necessarily mean a full, like an improvement. That's a totally different thing. And your research and trials show actual patient improvement. And that's, that's what the idea. Is. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you could, you could say, well, you know, there was some improvement in people on Aricept. Yes. The big difference there is Aricept, you get a bump up and then people go right back to declining. And in fact, when you look five years down the road, the people who actually got the drugs like Aricept um, actually were doing worse than the ones who didn't. Um, on the other hand, uh, what we've seen with the, the protocol that we've used is because you're attacking the root cause, because you're attacking what's actually causing the problem, people get better and they stay better. And I mentioned this in the book. Um, we have people now over nine years um, on the protocol and who are still doing very, very well. Again, because you are targeting the root causes of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that you say age-related memory loss is a fallacy uh, because we all just accept that you get older and you start to, you know, um, you, you start to say, oh, I'm having a senior moment. And I remember it was a family joke when my grandmother would say, you know, where are my keys, where are my glasses, uh, for the decade or two before she was diagnosed. Uh, but, you know, and having spoken to you and read your first two books, we can't undo the past, uh, so I, I'm not full of regret or anything, but I do think if I had my time again, I could have helped there. And uh, instead, of course, we're helping people here, and that is a great comfort. Um, but I think, you know, we it, it seems so common and accepted just because it's common doesn't shouldn't make it normal, right, that we start to feel fine, feel fine about forgetting things. You know, you bring up a really good point. And so, you know, we accept the idea that as people get older, um, you know, they get overweight, they get belly fat, um, they're not quite as sharp, uh, they can't, you know, they can't do running very well anymore. And again, we know that, yes, in, in the past, it's easy, we can say, oh, yeah, they, we just expect for people uh, to, to get overweight and things like that. Well, of course, now with functional medicine, we're understanding, ah, this is why that happens. They're actually becoming insulin resistance. They're actually having leptin resistance. They're actually developing inflammaging. So now we're starting to understand the chemistry behind all these things. And so my point, I wasn't trying to say that you're going to be you know, just as quick with your wits at 100 as you were at 20. Although in fact, you have a lot more experience then and you do certain things better when you're older than when you're younger. But the problem is we accept this age-related age-related memory loss far too quickly. And many of these people, as you talked about with your relative, um, uh, can go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. And so we're really seeing the early, earliest stages. And here's the problem. We have really hurt ourselves uh, as a society and as a medical establishment by, by coining the term mild cognitive impairment. So here's why. When you develop cognitive decline and go on ultimately to get Alzheimer's disease. There are four major stages. So you have a stage at the beginning where you have already the the biochemistry of Alzheimer's ongoing, but you're completely asymptomatic. Then you go, and that should really be called pre-Alzheimer's because it's like pre-diabetes. You're not noticing symptoms yet, but you're already, you're already, you know, uh, insulin resistant. The second stage of this four stage step is called subjective cognitive impairment, which really should be called early Alzheimer's disease. And this is considered to be, oh yeah, you know that something's not quite right, um, but you know, your testing isn't really showing it yet, your cognitive testing, your biochemical tests are ab- already abnormal. That really should be called early Alzheimer's. Virtually 100% of those people get better when you use an appropriate protocol. They are in the early stages of this problem. 
Then the third of four stages, so in other words, a relatively late stage in this problem is called mild cognitive impairment. And your doctor will say, yeah, it's not that bad yet. You know, you probably, you're getting a little older, just go home. That should be called advanced Alzheimer's disease. This is very much like saying mildly metastatic cancer. Don't worry, Alex, this is only mildly metastatic cancer. Go home and come back in a year. You would say, are you out of your mind? This is already the third of four stages of this problem. So it really should be called advanced Alzheimer's disease. Now these people, most of them do very well when you get on an appropriate protocol. The fourth and final stage, which is true Alzheimer's where you start losing activities of daily living, as you can see, that's the end of a very long, that should be called final stage Alzheimer's disease. Because that tells us, aha, we need to jump into this early where we can really do a tremendous amount. And in fact, as I've mentioned in the books time and time again, Alzheimer's disease should be a rare condition. We should never let people get to those third and fourth stages. They should either go on prevention when they're asymptomatic or when they get the mildest symptoms, boom, get on there. Now, what's the worst that can happen if you get on this? Oh, it wasn't really Alzheimer's. Fine. It, you still had problems with your cognition. You want those fixed anyway. That's another thing that always, may, always makes me, uh, uh, it, it, it concerns me. The doctors say, well, yeah, you're having a problem with your cognition, but don't worry, it's not Alzheimer's. Well, you still want it fixed. You want to know what it is. And so, the, again, everything in the Alzheimer's world is backward because of this feeling that we don't know what it is and there's nothing we can do. So, you know, don't worry about it. Don't look deeply into what's causing it and tell people, don't worry, it'll probably be okay. Don't use the A word. Tell people to come back next year. Just this morning, actually, I was on a Zoom uh, with a group and they had had a patient who had early Lewy body disease. Very treatable, very clear what was causing it. Uh, this guy, uh, very uh, still working full time, doing great, uh, went to a memory center. He was told, you have mild cognitive impairment, nothing you can do, go to support groups, because that's, you know, the, your, that's your future is with support groups. And you know, that's really sad to hear, because this is exactly the time when this guy should be finding out, if not before, what's causing this, let's, let's attend to it, let's make sure that you have many, many good years ahead. You're still nearly fully functional, you're still able to work full time, you're still able to do very well at work, let's jump in now instead of simply saying, it's over, go to support groups. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I love the title of your new book, The First Survivors. Uh, it's a very exciting title. Um, but I I can't help but think about the uh, line of work you're in as a doctor, as a researcher, and how that kind of a title, uh, as, as with the first two books, really, The End of Alzheimer's, also sounds like quite a sensationalist claim. And uh, how do you ward off criticism uh, that you might just be that controversial guy trying to sell books and programs and you know there's headline outrage there's public colleague shaming there's um you know hushing by big heavies in industry it, it, it must be tough out there to be you to a certain extent no question i appreciate you're asking that because you have to decide what is the gold standard here and the gold standard is results so if you have the results that are saying, here's what's going on, 
then I think you have to speak to the results. What happens, unfortunately, too often is medicine. You're either speaking to the politics. You're saying, well, the politicians don't want me to say this or that, even though it's true. So therefore, I'm, I'm going to stay away from, from saying it. Or you're speaking to the pharmaceutical industry, or you're speaking to the NIH, or some group, as opposed to saying, look, here's, let's give the unvarnished truth. Uh, and so, um, you know, uh, we have, uh, you know, we have certain politicians uh, in the country um, who, who just are saying the unvarnished truth, like, here's the truth. Um, people have trouble listening to that sometimes. But the reality is someone needs to say what the data actually say. Now, to be fair, the first two books, actually, um, I had a different title. So the, the title, The End of Alzheimer's, was not my title. Uh, my title was Wit's End, because the idea was that characterizes the research and that characterizes the disease. And this actually came from a suggestion from my wife, who, who's an excellent uh, family practitioner and integrative physician. And she said, you know, this is really about wit's end. And I said, that's a fantastic title. And so that was the title I submitted. And I submitted several other possibilities. They came back with, we want to call it the end of Alzheimer's. And so I was really upset about that. We went, we had some really nasty email exchanges. I said, you can't call it this. But ultimately I realized they were right. This is, uh, this is what we're telling people. If, you, if everyone were to get on appropriate prevention or early reversal, we could see a huge decrease in the global burden of dementia. And that is exactly the goal. So one of the things we're looking at now is how do we set up a large program for multiple countries, just as you would set up smallpox vaccinations, how do you set up something to make it? Or just as you would a COVID-19 vaccine, although I realize that's, been, that's become quite controversial. But how would you set up something to reduce the global burden of dementia and really to bring us a step closer to the end of Alzheimer's? With this third one, that was my title, The First Survivors of Alzheimer's, because these people had been through hell. And again, reading the stories, um, you know, being told, uh, having Julie, who was told by her uh, neurologist, she, you know, she had waited and waited to get in to see this outstanding neurologist. And she said, look, I'm an APOE 4-4, I'm struggling I'm down from the 98th to the 35th percentile on my testing, I'm not doing well. Can you simply just help me to stay where I am? And he just looked at her and said, good luck with that. What a horrible thing to hear for a patient. Um, who, and by the way, she's doing absolutely great and has been on protocol for nine years now. And oh, Julie's an inspiration. To, she's on the amazing. Instagram lives with you, the Facebook That's right, lives. She's, on the Facebook. she's yeah, supporting she's people. Great. It's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, she wrote part of the second book. Mm -hmm. So she's uh, she's doing great. And then you have someone like uh, like Deborah, who's gone in and who's watched her grandmother die of Alzheimer's, watched her father die of Alzheimer's, finds out she's APOE4 positive, goes into a major university and they say, you know, things aren't great. Uh, let's see how you do. Let's just kind of watch you over the time and watch you crumble when she's already knowing that she's struggling with things. Um, and then to hear how, you know, to hear her, what she wrote about as she was starting to see things come back online. I'm like, wait a minute, you know, I'm getting better at my expression. I'm getting better with my memory. I'm getting better with being on, you know, on top of things. Uh, it's really just so exciting to read what these people talked about with their stories. Um, and another one was Sally. Sally, who was forgetting to pick up her granddaughters 
uh, and then um, and showed and she actually had amyloid in her brain. She actually went on a drug trial and with each of the injections of the drug, she got worse, clearly worse. And so she finally, after several injections said, I can't do this, I gotta, I gotta find something else. And her husband actually found uh, our protocol and she's, her scores have come back up to optimal. She's done absolutely great. So it's, it's wonderful to see these. Now, people can argue, um, how do you know they're survivors? You know, maybe they will in 10 years. Well, they've all done very well for years and have been stable. Yes, I can't tell you they'll stay stable to 100. I don't know yet, we'll see but they are years uh, out from their initial diagnosis. And we know where they, when you have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you lose on average 3.4 points on your mini mental status or your MOPA per year. So we know from where they were before, where they would be. And they would, most of them would either be in nursing homes or would have passed away or be doing very poorly. And they're doing great. Um, and they're driving and some of them are, you know, working still and doing all sorts of wonderful things. So it's just, it's, it's wonderful to see that it's gone from, you know, 30 years ago, just doodles on a yellow pad and just ideas and, and equations and trying to think what experiments should we do to see that come all the way to uh, people actually getting better. has just been so exciting. That's incredible. And I guess, you know, really what the first survivors means is it's the first people who were given the di- the terminal diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and have in fact no longer got that clinically, right? And they're doing well. Exactly. And by the way, we had uh, some people with the recent trial that we finished in December and we just posted in May, uh, very exciting where people would have a diagnosis and they would lose that diagnosis during the trial. Um, wow. So we had people who actually went from, uh, you know, who went from uh, scores of 19 on their MOCAs, uh, you know, which a couple of people had full-on Alzheimer's. The rest of them had mild, so-called mild cognitive impairment, which I would call again advanced Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. uh, as a third of four stages. And these people came back to perfect scores of 30. Wow! Uh, so you know, wonderful to see these people who literally lost their diagnoses. So are we talking like people who would not recognize their partner anymore? Like, is there anyone with that kind of reversal? So the people who were in our trial were at scores of 19 or above, very similar, by the way, to the Atacanumab trial. And so, so these people at 19, you're typically still recognizing your partner. When you're not even recognizing your partner, you're down typically in single digits. The, av- the, the average for people who have uh, full Alzheimer's is 16.2. So these were people who, ha- who had early Alzheimer's or who had early, mid or late MCI. Now we're interested in what about the zero to 18? So I'm interested in another trial that we would call severe Alzheimer's reversal attempt, Sarah. And the idea is let's see if we take those people who have scores of seven, eight, 10, uh, that are that really are what you're talking about, where you're not even recognizing. We've had people with MOCA scores of zero who were nonverbal improved. Now, when they improve, they don't improve back to, to perfect. They improve, they start speaking again, they start mentioned these before in publication. Uh, what I'm interested in is can we make it 
so that we get all of those people to do much better. What would it take? Do they need stem cells? Do they need intranasal trophic factors? Do they need better detox? Do they need plasmapheresis? And on and on. There are all sorts of things. The arsenal that we have for cognitive decline is huge. We've always been told that there's nothing. It's the opposite. There's actually a tremendous, but you have to figure out for each person, what are the critical players here and then address those. And sometimes, you know, really stick with it for some period of time. So, so the point is other than anecdotally, we don't have in the trial, we didn't have people who were that far along. We did have people who were quite confused who, you know, who couldn't do fairly simple things uh, on their MOCA scores who then got perfect MOCA scores uh, afterwards. Uh, but, but in general, the ones who don't even recognize their partners are farther along. Yeah. Okay. And the Sarah trial is the one you're now initiating to address that group. Uh, that's what I'm. That's that would be the third. So the second trial we're now setting up is basically to go back to what we just did, which was a proof of concept trial with historical controls. Now we want to do randomized controlled trial with a hundred patients. So we'd then be able to follow ones that had standard of care versus ones that have the protocol that we developed. And that's, that's the idea. Now, there's a concern, um, you know, I'd love to say, okay, is standard of care now going to include aducanumab? Well, if that's the case, then for those control people, we're gonna have to do PET scans and MRIs and spinal taps and, and look for ble bleeding in the brain. I mean, suddenly it adds a lot of issues with potential side effects, as opposed to just giving standard of care, Aricept, Namenda, things like that. Uh, so so you're saying the new drug has brain bleed side effect potential? 17% of the people have these micro bleeds that I mentioned earlier in here. So the, yeah, so it's definitely an issue. You really have got to be very, very careful. Mm. It's not just about giving a drug and it's, it's about looking at these very significant side effects that can occur. Mm -hmm. Insane. Gosh. Oh, that's huge. Uh, well, it's very exciting um, that you are seeing such uh, positive results. And I know you shared a couple of stories um, can you share a story, uh, like, I, I know you're not supposed to pick a favorite child, but something that just really, like, really, you know, like kind of brought the tears to the eyes as a researcher. Yeah. I mean, you know, and again, all the seven of them were, were just remarkable. Um, I'd say one of the ones that, that really, really got me um, was, was Deborah's story because she watched her grandmother die of Alzheimer's. And in fact, her grandmother was trying to find her way back to her home. Uh, and you know, she just, that she could just never quite get there. And then her father, who was actually a quite an uh, outstanding neurologist, who then, uh, she, as she describes in the book, um, got lost driving. And she realized he hadn't come home. And she literally just started driving around trying to find him. And she finally found him on the road and honked at him and got him to pull over. And she said, you know, we really need to get you evaluated. She said, you know, if, if this happened to me, you would tell me that they needed to take some pictures of my brain. And he just looked at her straight, you know, straight and, and, and honestly and said, there, I know what I have and there's nothing that can be done about this problem. And indeed, he had Alzheimer's and died from it. 
And she just, it really, you know, it really hurt her. Here's a guy who had taken care of so many people with neurological problems and had helped so many people with things like MS and things like that and seizure disorder and things like that, who was succumbing to Alzheimer's disease. And so when she then began to have some of the same symptoms that she'd seen in him, now, of course, this was under, not only concerning to her for her own life, but she has a very close-knit family and looked at her children and said, oh my gosh, you know, is this the fate of my children as well? So um, just a, such a caring person. She's a, a brilliant attorney from Harvard uh, and just describing her, you know, what she went through and worrying about her family and then describing, you know, as she turned around and started to get better. Um, part of the thing that was, you know, one of the points that was so exciting to me is for all of the future generations to come, they should not have to worry about this problem any longer. Uh, that's that's the, the hope. So that that one I have to say really touched me to read about her relationship, and as and, and the quote I put in there was uh, you know a a, a father holds his daughter's hand for only a few short years, but he holds her heart forever, and that's very much Deborah's relationship with her father. He held her heart forever, and she you know had very very close relationship with him. Mm, so incredible. Um incredible that there was able to be a happy ending with such a tragic past. Um, okay, where, where, where do I want to go from that story? That's crazy. So uh, you were talking about, you've mentioned APOE4 a couple of times. With these first survivors, with your trials, uh, what kind of percentage are we talking that's genetic-influenced uh, versus um, other factors? It's a great point. And so, um, you know, in general, what we say is that 95% of people have sporadic Alzheimer's, non-genetic, but where, where the genetics comes in, so the 5% is the APP mutations and PS1 and PS2 mutations, but where the genetics comes in is in just as it does with things like hypercholesterolemia, there's an increased risk, but it's not your fate. So in fact, you know, nobody with APOE4, I don't believe anybody with APOE4 should get Alzheimer's disease. If you look at people with zero copies of APOE4, and that's three quarters of the population, their risk is about 9%. That's aggregate risk for your whole life, about 9%. So it's not zero, but it's not terribly high. Single copy, about 30%, two copies, well over 50%. Most likely you will get it. In the US, at least, there are about 75 million with a single copy. The vast majority don't know it everybody should find out and get on appropriate prevention. Let's make sure that none of these people gets Alzheimer's. And then two copies, that's 7 million Americans. So, and it's about 2% of the population. So in Australia, I'm sure it's the same sort of thing. About 2% of the population will have two copies and about 25% of the population will have a single copy. And again, you shouldn't be, people worry about finding out and we've been told, don't, don't bother to check because there's nothing you can do nothing could be further from the truth. There's a tremendous amount you can do. And so everybody should get evaluated. Uh, and so that, you know, that's the approach there. And then what happens with that, the, the, the genetics contribute. So they contribute to your risk and they increase the risk. And so when you look at people with Alzheimer's, about 65% of them are APOE4 positive. So you can see it selects for APOE4. 
Um, but that, that doesn't mean that the other 35% are people who, who uh, don't have ApoE4. So there are certainly other things that contribute. And there are about 30 different genes that all have small, and even more than that now, even that have small uh, or have varying degrees of increased risk, things like TREM2, uh, which is less common, but has about the same magnitude of effect uh, of ApoE4. Um, and then there are numerous others as well. So, you know, so the, this is, a, it's a contributor to risk, but it is mm. not your fate. Exactly. So could it be said then that in that 5% group that have the single or double copies, that the chronic inflammation, toxins, mitochondrial energy issues and stress would therefore ramp up their chances of having it um, become that even more so for, than for the other um, 95% that don't. Yes. So the people who have ApoE4, the, the 2% that has the two copies and the 25% that has the single copy, these people absolutely are at greater risk. So when they have inflammation, and, and by the way, when you look at what ApoE4 does, and we, we published that in the past and spent uh, over a decade looking at that in the lab, um, there is a very interesting effect that this is, this is a pro-inflammatory gene. And you could say, well, why would you have a gene that's pro-inflammatory? Well, it actually helps you uh, in when you've got exposure to various things like pathogens, um, you're actually more resistant to them. So again, this is, this is what's called antagonistic pleiotropy. It's a short-term advantage, but a long-term liability that will decrease your longevity. Well, okay, now that we understand how it works, we can get the best, best of both worlds and we can mm. now make sure that you don't have that liability as you get older. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw that you mentioned SPMs, which I was excited about in the yes. book because yeah. uh, I came across them for the first time last year, never heard about them, but I had a uh, quite a severe mold re-exposure for a period of a few months. And uh, so I know cognitive impairment, boy, do I know it. Uh, it's unbelievable what that stuff can do to you. Um, and I sort of placed an emergency call to my doc. I'm like, I honestly feel like my brain is inside a stocking trying to navigate life right now. Help me. And she said, okay, I'm going to get you on these SPMs. Uh, we have a, it's available here as a Metagenics product if anyone wants to talk to their practitioners. Um, and uh, she had me on a quadruple dose for two months to really ramp things up. And then now I'm just on a normal dose, but it was honestly like getting my brain back. It was an incredible supplement. And I just wanted to ask you, because obviously um, it is derived from fish oils. What, what is the difference? What makes SPMs special? What are they for a start? Because most people probably won't know. Yeah, great point. So as you know, this came from the research of Professor Charles Searhan at Harvard who for years was trying to understand what happens to the inflammatory response. And so it's not just about an anti-inflammatory. And again, you have to look at each step here. So yes, when you have exposure to a pathogen or a toxin or things like that, where you are responding, SARS-CoV-2, good example, you have this response, you have an innate response, then you have an adaptive response, but then you actually have to turn this down. You have to turn this down. You have to resolve, as he pointed out, there are specialized pro-resolving mediators. Now, as you indicated, 
These are cousins of omega-3s. So what happened was people were throwing these things out when they were making the omega-3s for years. So no question, you can take high degrees of omega-3s and you'll make some of the SPMs. So that's one way to go and you certainly get that as an effect. However, what he did was to work with metagenics as you indicated and actually develop separately things that are now the, the specialized pro-resolving mediators. So you're not just hoping that you're gonna develop it from the fish oil. And everybody has the same response that, yeah, it, do, it does seem to have a, quite an impact on helping to reduce the, uh, you know, the inflammation. Now, again, you have to remember, this all has to be internally consistent. If you're just resolving inflammation, but now you're continuing with an inflammogen, in the long run, you're going to have problems. So as you well know, you've got to get away from the mycotoxins. You've got to get away from the water-damaged buildings, the, all the things that are causing the inflammation. And that's another consideration. You've got to get away from And then the, the next consideration is, well, you also have primed your microglia and your mast cells, and they're kind of like waiting now. So you're, in the long run, you've got to kind of relax them. Otherwise, you're going to be in this constant state uh, of arousal and concern, understandably. Um, and, and was very surprised to see a, a woman recently um, whose husband has been doing everything right, fantastic. She had very severe mycotoxicity and, and, and you know, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so a relatively late stage of the overall process. Um, and has done very well, but started to backslide and was like, what was this all about? And it turned out ultimately that she had a lot of new stresses and just quieting things down turned out to be, in her case, very helpful. So again, as long as your amygdala is picking up stress and threat, you're not going to do as well cognitively. And that's why you know, love the uh, Apple Watch heart rate variability and the various you know, wearables. I think wearables and social media are going to be two of the really positive uh, contributors to getting rid of or making Alzheimer's much more rare for all of us. Uh, so being able to pick up things like your oxygenation at night while you're sleeping and your heart rate variability and ongoing. Uh, one of the big ones recently, CGM, uh, everybody's now looking at their continuous glucose monitoring and really being shocked to see, oh my gosh, I, you know, I ate that healthy oatmeal and my <laughs> blood glucose skyrocketed. Yeah, yeah. Then I went to bed and I came down to 45 and I woke up in the middle of the night and now I know why. So we're all learning much more about, you know, about what these things are. So I think SPMs, great part of the arsenal, again, used appropriately with the other pieces. Yeah, absolutely. And diet is obviously a huge part of Recode. And we spoke about the Recode program quite in, in a lot of detail in the first two shows. So I don't want to dive too far into it here. I want to encourage everybody to take a listen because then we'll give the topic justice and, and the time it deserves. But in the simplest of forms, do you think this dietary protocol, which you call uh, it's a variation of the ketogenic diet. You call it the keto flex diet. Do you feel that arriving at this as a way of helping patients get results uh, and reverse cognitive decline, do you feel that it's because it's the diet most akin to what we would have eaten before we all decided to get far too involved with food production? Is it, you know? It's a great question and um, involved with the upcoming 10th anniversary for ancestral health symposium down at UCLA. 
And so this, this issue comes up all the time. And my wife and I discuss this all the time. How much of this is we're just not, you know, we're not doing the right thing ancestrally. And I do think a lot of this is what's going on here. We were not evolutionarily designed to eat high amounts of sugar, for example, to stay up all night, for example, to be, uh, you know, we were designed to be chased by a, by a predator for short periods, but not for <laughs> our whole lives. Yeah. You know, having a, a nasty boss who's got you under stress 24-7 for 10 years is not good for, for your brain. Um, so these all these sorts of things are critical. And then, of course, the fact that we're all exposed to these toxins as you know, we're really we're not made to live indoors. So we've made these assumptions. Let's just build something and let's live inside of it. Well, yeah, for some Sometime you can get away with it, but that's not really where we do the best. And it's a, by the way, the same thing with SARS-CoV-2, of course, almost everyone who's getting it is getting it when they're indoors or when they're in these big groups, when they're outdoors doing appropriate things, they're virtually never getting it. I know so everyone I gets upset at the people on the beaches and I'm like, no, be out there. It's a good idea. Exactly. You need to get out to the beaches and get out there and you're diluting this stuff and getting sunshine and getting, you know, good air and all this sort of stuff. So you're absolutely right. I do think that a lot of the ancestral things have been helpful. But again, we, we developed this based on neurochemistry, based on taking, okay, now we understand, we believe we understand what the signaling is that leads to the cognitive decline that we ultimately call Alzheimer's. Okay, that gives us a whole new look how early it is when it starts, what you can do early on, what you can do for prevention, what do you do for reversal, what's going to make you worse. And one of the things is, what is the neurochemistry you need to support in your brain, the diet part of it, to get the best outcomes? And so we called this KetoFlex 12-3 just because we wanted to emphasize those four aspects. Number one, repeatedly, people who can get into some degree of ketosis do the best. And so you've got this energy mismatch at the beginning, and you can see it on a PET scan. You look at fluorodeoxyglucose uptake, and you have reduced uptake, reduced utilization, temporal and parietal regions. So you've got to address that. And people can do that with exogenous ketones or ultimately with endogenous. But that's a, to me, that's an emergency. You've got this problem. You've got to fix that. But then you want to have it so that you, in the long run, you can get into some endogenous ketosis. We know that you want to get up, the people who do the best are getting up between one and four millimolar beta-hydroxybutyrate, or if you like to go by ACEs on the, on the biosense and do a breathalyzer, you know, you want to get up in the above seven category. Um, you want to get up there, you know, 10 or so. It's typically like a 10 to one. So just like one on the beta-hydroxybutyrate, 10 on the ACEs. And is the um, one to four scale that you do with the P test with those little strips or with a little yeah, blood? That's, uh, blood no, that's prick? The, the blood. That's the yep. beta hydroxybutyrate that you want to get in your blood. Yeah. Got it. Um, and then it's, uh, we said flexitarian. Basically, we, we were trying to say it doesn't matter. You want to be vegetarian, that's fine. The reality is, I understand flexitarian is a specific thing. You can't be vegetarian as a true flexitarian. But I actually got this originally from an Australian researcher, uh, Professor Simon Meloff uh, at the Buck Institute, uh, who was explaining flexitarianism to me years ago. And I thought, well, okay, this is a good point to use. We want someone who can have small amounts of fish and meats and things like that. And yeah, it's, it's great. And of course, if you've got mold disease, you often need higher degrees. You, got, you need more protein. And for many people, you just need the enzymes or the pH 
to absorb it. That's another issue. So again, this is not about one diet or another diet. It's about how do we use everything at our disposal to get the ultimate neurochemical outcome. And then the 12, three part of it is a minimum of 12 hours of fasting at night and then three hours before bed of fasting. So you don't wanna eat right up until bed. It spikes your insulin, not a good thing. And you don't wanna be eating right up until late. And then as soon as you wake up in the morning, you need to have that time. And so you can really see as you reduce your, uh, your carb in, uh, input, um, you can just see, and I did this myself just last week, you can see your, your biosense spike um, you can really see your, you know, your increases in your ketone formation. And with that, your weight will come off. You're, you're burning that fat um, and your brain does quite well. And again, if you're very thin, you have to be careful. And, you, and this is why I recommend people at the beginning, just go ahead and take the exogenous ketones. There are all sorts of good ones. KE1 is one that I like, but you can do MCT oil, you know, all sorts of things to do. If you've got a poor lipid profile, use the ketone salts or esters don't use the, uh, you know, the, the medium chain triglycerides because they can bump your, your, uh, uh, your LDL particle number. If you've got a good LDL particle number between 800 and 1200, no problem. Um, so again, all of these things are part of balancing to get best outcomes. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you mentioned mold disease and extra protein. Funny story. Uh, well, not funny. It was actually quite <laughs> traumatic, um, but I started getting a, a ton of muscle twitching and spasms, like really quite badly. And of course, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. My blood tests are perfect and everyone just scratches their head and goes, good luck. And, uh, and so thank God for the internet support groups, doctors such as yourselves raising awareness uh, and many others. Um, and I put it out to uh, the toxic mold support group that I'm in and one of the guys who's been researching this for yonks in the group uh, said, you might want to just take 30 grams of whey protein along with each of your meals for a week and see if that moves the needle. Cause I eat, I would call it a um, quite keto flexish, actually plant rich, um, but you know, a bit of protein, but never really been a huge focus. I actually much prefer to get a huge ton of vegetables. So I, so eating tons of meat is not my favorite, but being able right. to have it in a smoothie, say, I can handle the idea of that. So I did that and literally two days into doing that, the twitching just subsided. And I tried it with um, a pea protein first, um, A, because it's cheaper, B, because it's easier to trace um, ethically and um, sustainability-wise but it just didn't work. It did absolutely nothing, but it switched to the whey protein and managed to find a great American supplier, grass-fed, pasture-raised, uh, and um, I was shocked at how quickly that helped. So in, can I just ask then and be a little bit indulgent, is that harmful to then the cognitive piece because it's high protein for a bit, or is that where the bioindividuality of the stressor on the body comes in where you have to look at the person? Yeah, no, it's, it's absolutely fine. Um, and, and the only issue is if you take so much protein in that you're actually harming your glycemic load. So as you know, either transamination, so you can end up bumping your, you can spike your glucose because you're just taking too much protein. So that's all you want to do is avoid that. And so, you know, there are various issues people use often, you know, a 70% fat and, you know, 20% protein, 10% uh, 
carbohydrates or, or something like that. But there are different ones. And again, you need more protein if you've got mold disease, if you're trying to rebuild things, if you've got trauma, if you know all these sorts of things, sometimes as you get older. So at my late age, okay, I need to, I may need a little more protein and I, and I may need to take some enzymes. And so when I eat some meat, I do take enzymes just to make sure, yeah, I'm going to absorb this well enough. But it's it was something you said struck me. Isn't it interesting? You have to go as someone who has a specific thing, which every doctor should recognize. You have to go to a support group to get people to recognize something where doctors deny the existence of the very thing that affects you. That just amazes me at how recalcitrant we physicians have been, how closed-minded we've been when it's very clear that so many thousands upon thousands of people are suffering, suffering from mold-related illness. And doctors literally deny the existence of this problem. It's, it's amazing. It is amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I have nothing left to say. It, it constantly shocks me, but I will continue to try and move the needle there and raise awareness. And uh, in our last chat last year, um, where we talked about the Recode program at length and the, the major uh, contributors to uh, developing Alzheimer's disease, mold was very much one of them. So if you want to explore that, um, everyone listening a little bit more, I have popped all of the past shows in the show notes. So my last question, Dale, how do we advance your incredible research to reach the point of data that no one, no government, no medical association can any longer ignore? Because this is crazy. We're on 30 years now and you guys are clearly doing the best job out there. Um, What can we do? How How can a listener help? advance the cause. Yeah, well, you know, one of my favorite sayings uh, is actually from from a rabbi um, who said that uh, you are not expected to complete your life's work during your lifetime, neither are you excused from it. So what's gonna happen when you you described, which is general acceptance of this is gonna be long after I'm gone. Uh, There was a famous physicist who said that, you know, that physics advances one funeral at a time. Um, when you're, you know, when you're trying to get a new idea out there, you're fighting with all the people who learned the old idea, and they're putting meat on their table and supporting their families based on an, an outdated idea. They're not about to give it up, as we, as we all know. So what's going to happen though is this next trial um, will be able to again just keep adding to it to show that yes, you know, we can really make a difference in these people. That's that's hoping it works. Let's let's see how the trial. Uh, we know what it shows. Certainly, if it's anything like the one we just finished, we'll have very positive results once again. Um, and, you know, Dean Ornish went through this with cardiovascular disease, saying that, hey, you can actually reverse cardiovascular disease uh, without doing surgery, with, with doing his protocol. Um, interestingly, Dean took him 16 years for Medicare to approve his protocol for use. And now, you know, you, they will reimburse for actually using his protocol and people licensed it for that use. And he complained to a politician and said, hey, it took 16 years to get this. Politician looked at him and said, only 16 years? How did you do that? I want you to teach me. Let's face it, these things move slowly. So at this point, I'm just happy that I'm not getting the same treatment as Semmelweis, who was thrown into an insane asylum and died two weeks later. Uh, oddly, you know, ironically from an infection. So I'm very happy no one's thrown me into an insane asylum yet. That's a good thing. 
Um, and I think, you know, we just have to keep going, keep showing one after one after one that this is a much better way to go. And I did a brief, you know, back of the envelope calculation. Um, if you look at how much you're gonna, you're gonna go downhill naturally versus aticanumab versus our trial, and then you look at per dollar. So divide by dollars that are their cost, because it's cost much less to do the right thing. Then doing the protocol is about 60 times as efficient as doing this new drug. So I think people will come to that. And I hope that Medicare will figure that out. And I hope that Kaiser will figure it out and these various groups, but it's gonna take you know, more time. And as I said, uh, data, ultimately it's publishing the data and saying that you just can't refute these data over time. And people are beginning, it's interesting, they're getting into this in small ways. Let's just try a diet or let's just try exercise. And I understand the desire there is to do a trial, get a grant. But the, the, the real goal should be what's the best outcome we can get for the patients. And so that's, I think, you know, that's always going to be the most important goal. Yeah. And I, it's funny that you mentioned that quote. I don't know if you can see on my screen there, but after I read your book uh, last week, I was like, wow, that quote is, that's huge. That is, that is why we turn up and it's not to get all the glory now. It's actually, you know, often you're going to be, you're going to be famous like all the painters and musicians long after you're gone. <laughs> Unfortunately, it sucks, but, you know, thank you for starting the work. And, uh, and I think um, I, I just kind of want to finish up by asking you uh, of all the things that are on your horizon right now, personally, what are you most excited about? Yeah, um, I'm excited about uh, the, I guess I would say two things, the ARC project. So applying this to all these other diseases and saying, can we take the unique neurochemistry of these? Um, and the other piece, which is essentially part of that is, can we put together a global program to, and really see an impact? What I really wanna see is the global burden of dementia demonstrably decline. If we can now see, and it's gonna take time, but if we can say, wow, we got so many millions of people on prevention that we can actually begin to see the actual data coming down, you know, the census of people with cognitive decline decreasing, that is going to be very, very exciting. And I think that's, you know, that's the way we're headed. And supporting that is, is uh, deeper dives in medicine, more computer-based algorithms, larger data sets. You know, medicine needs to get its get out of this old-fashioned notion that we're guys that sit in an office or, or women who sit in an office and write a little prescription and say, okay, next, and you know, can only see patients for seven minutes. We've got to get out of that and get bring ourselves into the 21st century, get large data sets, get everything, you know, a lot of stuff done before we ever even see the person and then say, okay, here's the here's the change in your system's biology that occurred. Um, actually, someone just said to me the other day, hey, you know, like hypertension, why do we do such silly things with hypertension? And it really is true. It doesn't make sense uh, from an engineering standpoint. Oh, wait a minute. You, you don't know what causes it. You don't ask what causes it. And you just do something that gets around nature and now tries to prevent your body from a response that is, is there for some reason. What is wrong with you people? And so I, I, I really look forward to the modernization um, of medicine for all of my colleagues and myself. Yeah. We got to stop going after the fires. 
Yeah. Uh, and we've actually got to start going after the faulty appliances and the, the burglars instead. Uh, absolutely. And it makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Dale. I, I always appreciate your time. I really uh, think everyone needs to read this book uh, and your past too, especially if you have been directly affected by Alzheimer's in your own family or perhaps uh, you've noticed you're getting a little forgetful here and there, or, you know, the, now is the time. The more of us that know about this incredible work, uh, the more we can change the picture together. So I really appreciate your work, Dale. Thanks so much, Alex. It's always great talking to you and look forward to catching up in the future and please stay well, stay safe. Thank you. You too. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 Euro and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.